Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Hello and welcome to Law and the Family, brought to you by the Family Law Section of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. I'm Aaron Weems, and with me is my co-host, Anthony Cooper. Today we welcome Chelsea Christensen, an attorney with High Schwartz in Norristown, Montgomery County, who will today talk about some of the intricacies of voluntary and involuntary termination of parental rights in an adoption case that she took to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in 2001. Chelsea, welcome to the show, and please take a moment to introduce yourself to our audience. Thank you. Uh, Good afternoon. My name is Chelsea Christensen, as Erin indicated. I am a domestic relations attorney at High Swartz in Norristown and Doylestown. Great. Thanks for being here. Let's start by talking a little bit about this case uh, that you had. Tell us a little bit about the facts and tell us a little bit about how issues of parental rights and the termination of those rights found its way up to the highest court in our state. Yes. So in this case, I was court appointed to represent the father. The child lived with mother and maternal grandparents. And so the facts were essentially that my guy wasn't around much for a period of time. He tried to get in touch with mother, tried to see the child, and eventually he filed a custody action in February of 2019. They went through the process in Montgomery County. So they did the mediation and they also attended the conciliation in Montgomery County. And mother also initiated a child support action where paternity was contested. And so there was paternity testing. All of that happened between the period of February and mid-April 2019. And then in mid-April 2019, uh, maternal grandparents joined by mother filed to terminate father's parental rights. And in this case, the mother filed to voluntarily relinquish her parental rights. And so the grandparents would adopt the child and then both parents' rights would be terminated. And that just set up right there. And I know there are a couple legal issues in this case, but that for lack of a better term, was some clever legal maneuvering, so to speak, where I, I think the end all, the, the goal, I mean, you're hypothetically here at the goal was to simply sever father. Is that right? Yes. The goal was essentially to get him out of the picture. And so the, the kind of clever legal maneuver would be mom who was, was otherwise kind of running the risk, so to speak, that she'd always be aligned with her parents, right? Because there's a possibility that she wouldn't. Again, we're all kind of surmising here, but that the plan that they had was the only way we really could sever father is if mom also agreed to sever her relationship to the child, and then that grandparents would then step in the role of the parents. Yes. So that's where, you know, there was a case before this, the MRD case, which is really what the Superior Court and the Supreme Court looked at. But in the MRD case, uh, the mother in that case wanted to keep her parental rights and then have her father, grandfather, adopt the child to get dad out of the picture. And the Supreme Court said, 
no, you can't do that. We're kind of fast forwarding. But essentially, the argument that I made was that this was just the evolution in that, you know, just the next strategic way to accomplish the same goal that was the goal of the MRD case. But there, there's some other legal issues here that were significant, if, if you wouldn't mind just kind of touching on those as well. Sure. So the issues were with sufficiency of the evidence under 2511A1. So that was the grounds that father's rights were ultimately terminated. And I made an argument under the sufficiency of evidence that filing for custody is sufficient post-abandonment contact um, for purposes of the Adoption Act. And kind of in the spirit of that, I mean, that goes along with what the holdings were, I guess, the spirit of the holdings of the MRD case. So is uh, the filing of the custody action constitute the reasonable firmness uh, standard that we often see when we talk about people that have had potentially getting their rights terminated, showing that reasonable firmness to overcome obstacles? Do they view that that filing as sufficient to demonstrate that despite whatever issues he had, that was enough to demonstrate an intent to retain his parental rights? Ultimately, that the Supreme Court did. Um, the trial court, one of the core issues was the actual language of the statute. And so under the statute, under 2511A1, the court is to look at the period immediately preceding, the six-month period immediately preceding the filing of the TPR. In the trial court opinion, they focused a lot on the conduct of father before February 2019 and concluded that it wasn't enough, that you'd been absent for too long, just coming in and filing for custody. It doesn't make up for it. It's not enough. And one of the issues that I raised was that the court, the trial court focused too much on the time outside of the preceding six months. And that really, when you look at it in the six months, he'd done more than he ever had in terms of trying to assert his parental claim and try to perform parental duties as would be permitted through custody court. So if I understand that correctly, they were really focused on a further time frame before he ever initiated that custody action. Is that carrying greater weight than the more recent to the six-month threshold? Is that accurate? Yes. So that was one of the issues I raised with the trial court's analysis. The case had, it was an interesting way that it went through to the Supreme Court. So at the trial court level, I was actually appointed the day on a Friday and our appeal deadline was Saturday. So I had one weekend to get the record, get the transcripts because it's a child's fast track appeal. So you have to file your concise statement contemporaneously with the notice. And so I filed I filed that all on the, the last day. And before the Superior Court, I made a sufficiency argument. And then it was essentially a policy argument that about the policy as articulated in the Supreme Court MRD case. The Superior Court vacated the termination decree based only on the MRD argument which is then what the Supreme Court analyzed when they granted Alicotter. But I kept my sufficiency argument in my Supreme Court brief, and the Supreme Court ultimately decided based on the sufficiency argument that the Superior Court never addressed. And, and that, yeah, and, and that, well, I mean, just from an appellate standpoint, that that is 
certainly interesting. But I guess from your perspective, I mean, having your head been in this, it brings it back more to the statute, right? As opposed to being a public policy argument from, you know, MRD, and they tied it back to the statute, right? With respect to this deficiency. Correct. They tied it back to the statute and back to the case law that we've had. You know, one of the things that was a little bit difficult when writing the brief is that the law does say that the court is supposed to consider the circumstances of the parent. So if the parent has had, if there have been issues of abandonment, the, the court's supposed to look at what those circumstances were. But in terms of the appellate, the, the decisions that I was finding, they were pretty dated. So it was, it was difficult to kind of, uh, to think about what, what would a modern court view about these circumstances? Because the cases I'm finding are 1975, 1986, uh, 1990. So that was, yeah, it was a kind of a difficult undertaking, but I think that ultimately the result with the Supreme Court decision was interesting insight into how modern courts do view people's circumstances. And my client's circumstances involved being in the military, having some mental health issues, having some incarceration issues. So I thought it was really interesting and I think they're important things for the court for this to, to get the Supreme Court's insight, because these are things in terms of our jobs that we're dealing with all the time. We have clients who come in and they have mental health issues or they have some drug and alcohol issues. And to see when the court, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, evaluating the circumstances of those parties and what's what's appropriate in terms of what ex, um, efforts that they're util, that they're demonstrating. I just thought that was really important. You know, and you, and you kind of touch on a subject in terms of what a modern court would do and also the modern circumstances and some of the tools that are at our disposal now compared to years past. The idea of, re, of having the, of, of the reasonable firmness of maintaining the contact and then the other prong of the termination piece, which is whether you're severing a bond between a parent and a child. And when you just mentioned a couple of those factors that your client had, probably more so now than in other times in history, there's a better availability of being able to have access to somebody even when you're not near them, whether it's FaceTime, video conferencing, whether it's messaging on social media, there's probably a better opportunity to stay connected than ever before. And with someone like dealing with the issues that your client was going through, can you just talk a little bit about maybe some of the examples of some of the things that he may have tried to do in an effort to preserve that? contact and communication with his child? So most of what he tried to do was through telephone contact. He would reach out to mother. One of the things he testified about was that he would need to use multiple different phone numbers. And the inference he was making was that he believed mother's phone, that mother had blocked his telephone number. One of the other facts was that he believed that mother was going to pursue harassment charges against him. And that mother, he testified that mother had threatened that if he continued to contact her, she would have him arrested for harassment, which was a significant concern to my client because he was on probation. And so if he incurred new charges, he would then be incarcerated. And your court pointed, so is a threat like that to him, someone in that situation that he might not have the access to the legal counsel, did that color how he approached things at all? I think one of the, it was interesting because some of the facts that the Supreme Court seemed to find compelling were things that were kind of overlooked, I would say, by the trial court. So one of the things that the Supreme Court commented on, which I highlighted in my brief, was that 
For a period of time, he lived in VA transitional housing where he could not have any children residing with him. And that was for probably, I believe it was 10 months during this time where there was abandonment. He was living in housing where it would be impossible for him to even exercise any custodial time. And that was something that the Supreme Court pointed out when they looked at the facts of the case. And it is interesting, you know, we talk about in this day and age, you know, the ability and and ways to communicate, but also, I mean, in the inverse, I mean, the ways that people can block, you know, on, on their cell phones, they just, you push a button and they're blocked, you know, you block email. It goes both ways that I think our, our society and the different, much different ways to connect, but those tools have, all those tools have built in ways then to block as well. Not necessarily saying specific to your case, but just that concept in general, where a court would say, well, with all the different ways you have to communicate these days, it sounds simple and accurate, but I think there's an extra layer there to consider. I think that's fair. And I, and I also think that that's when you've got people in a situation like that, it becomes incumbent upon you to be able to say or be able to demonstrate that, hey, I called mom a dozen times, you know, because mom may go up there and testify and say, hey, I, I never got a phone call from him. Now, she may leave out the fact that she went on to his contact in her, in her phone and hit block, and so it would have never appeared on her phone anyway. But I think you're right, Anthony. That becomes a, a discovery uh, or an evidence question when you've got two people that are testifying to two different things about you know, attempts to communicate. And that was one of the one of the issues I guess I had in this case was just thinking about it as a practitioner and thinking about, okay, if, if this guy came and met with me in February of 2019, what would I have told him to do? And what I would have told him to do is file for custody and go file for support against yourself, right? That's what we as practitioners would do. We would say, yeah, keep trying to call mom, send her a letter. But I don't think most people out there are saying you need to go and physically get your child. And that was one of the things that I argued in my brief is that if we're not saying that filing for custody and using your legal remedies are sufficient, What are we as practitioners supposed to be advising our clients so that way they can do what needs to be done to demonstrate reasonable firmness and to make sure that their parental claim is being preserved? And also not without falling into the trap of trying to employ some kind of self-help that will probably only backfire on. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's really good. That's great. I mean, it's a a very interesting case. And I think uh, I know you've only really scratched the surface on some of the nuance of what happened procedurally and in, in the appellate process. But while we still have you, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what the experience was for you in arguing at the Supreme Court level? I know it was not probably the standard experience. Yes. Yeah, so I argued in April of 2021. It was actually on my birthday, which was kind of fun, my 29th birthday. So it was an interesting way to close out my final year in my 20s. It was on Zoom. And so that was a little bit, I mean, I would have loved to have been able to go to the Superior Court, or I'm sorry, the Supreme Court. And I actually also never got to argue before the Superior Court because that was scheduled in April of 2020. And so that was canceled. So this is my first oral argument ever. (laughs) It was a really a really great experience, nerve-wracking for sure. Yeah, it was it was just an unforgettable experience. 
I don't know. Oral argument is so different than anything I'd ever done. It's definitely different than trial work. It was hard to articulate, especially because at that point, I just had lived in this case for so long. And I was thinking about it analytically and kind of cerebrally and to try to put everything into words when asking one specific question about the case. It was it definitely wasn't easy. Did you find doing it over Zoom that it felt a little bit more focused from like, you know, because each kind of looking at each justice in turn, I guess. And when they posed questions to you, did it feel a little bit more like a spotlight? What, what was it like doing it that way? It did feel a little bit more like a spotlight. And it also is weird to see yourself. <laughs> when, you know, you do things in person, you can, you don't have that, uh, I guess, extra layer of criticism to see how you are. And so I was always trying to control my face and, you know, in a way that if I was just arguing in person, I don't think you would be as aware of. But it was hard to when even when the other side was arguing, you're sitting there and you're trying not to react. <laughs> you realize that you don't quite have the poker face that you thought you had? <laughs> yeah, I have realized that was Zoom. In fact, after I did my first Zoom trial, I saw my like I saw a friend afterwards and they asked me, like, what is wrong with your eyebrows? And I learned that, like, that's how I do my poker face. I just, like, hold my eyebrows up and hold my eyes. And so after eight hours of a Zoom trial, she's like, there's something wrong with your eyebrows. Well, for many of us that, you know, for many people that, you know, either don't do appellate work or haven't had the opportunity to, to argue via Zoom or in person to the Supreme Court or the Superior Court, it's really interesting to hear that process and uh, what that experience is like. Did you, in, in preparation of that, did you do any any moot courts or any moot arguments with colleagues? Well, tell us a little bit about the preparation that you did to get ready for it. I did. So I did some practice arguments with some of the partners at my firm. I had a couple partners. I would just ask them to read the briefs and then just kind of cold ask me questions about it. I will say that the Supreme Court justices, they were prepared. I mean, they knew this stuff. They knew other case law that they would ask questions about. And so it was an involved and it definitely an analytical argument. And that was, I think, harder to prepare for because it's not that, they, you know, the other partners in my firm weren't necessarily. I mean, they, you know, the Supreme Court was the author of MRD. They knew that case. They knew the facts of that case. And the people who I practiced with certainly didn't have that uh, background. Okay. Well, Chelsea, thank you for joining us. Any any parting advice or just comments on either your experience in this, this area of law or appellate practice in general? I would say that I learned a lot about appellate practice in doing this case. The one thing that there were some issues about whether or not some of the issues, the claims on appeal were preserved. One of the issues in this appeal was whether or not the Supreme Court could immediately address the sufficiency argument. And so I would say to anyone who maybe doesn't do as much appellate work, if you just read some of the footnotes of this case, you can get a lot of information about appellate practice because there were some procedural nuances to the case. And that was, I certainly learned a lot from that. Yeah, good advice. All right, well, Chelsea, thank you. Very insightful and interesting topic. Thank you everyone for listening to the Law and the Family podcast from the Family Law section of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Continue to follow us and hopefully you'll be listening to us soon. Thank you. 
Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash law in the family. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.